Welcome to Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. And I'm Matt Henry. And we are back in Systematic Theology 3 and Eschatology. Uh, Last time we actually finished up uh, that first portion, which is Personal Eschatology, uh, which covers the topics of death and the intermediate (laughs) state. Uh, And so today we're going to officially begin the second portion of Eschatology, which is referred to as cosmic eschatology. And so the first topic to discuss in this is the return of Christ, um, just in broad general terms. Uh, And it's a concept that's simple enough to understand, but there are several points um, to further develop on it. Uh, And so we've got five or six, can't remember. Um, Points? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So. First of all, uh, just to begin this, there are two passages that compare the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Jesus Christ. So in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, Paul writes this. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So here Paul states the first appearing of Christ was, as he says, to bring salvation and also to instruct us on how to live godly in this present age. Um, And that, that is in fact why he did so much teaching before he died. Right. Um, a lot of people wonder, why didn't he just come and die right away right. and rise? Well, he had to teach. Um, but Paul also states that we're to live godly in this present age in a certain way. And how is that? Well, by looking for or toward the second coming of Christ, which he calls here the blessed hope. Um, now, that is an active verb uh, showing how present faithfulness is grounded in fixing our hope on something that is yet to come. We're not vaguely acknowledging Jesus in his, uh, that he's returning in some way, but we're to be actively looking for it. Um, that, in fact, is how sensible, righteous, godly living comes about. Right instruction or teaching has to be fueled by a future-looking hope. Um, so why do so many well-taught Christians slouch through their Christian life? Paul would say, actually, it's because their knowledge is not something that's married to that future hope. I don't know if we can do it or not, but I, I do think that there is a value um, in looking at the many passages at some point where it is that forward-looking. The New Testament is actually far more forward-looking than backward-looking, um, and the passage you just mentioned uh, out of Titus, you know, the blessed hope, um, and you, you've got some other—in fact, the very next passage you're going to read talks about that, but how often are the people oriented toward this anticipation Um in fact, I just we just were working on another script, but even the storing up your treasures, where where do you do it? On heaven or in heaven or on earth? Well, it's really hard to want to store up treasures in heaven if you're really not looking there. Yeah, you're yeah. you're you're really thinking about here. Yeah, 
Anyhow, absolutely. Yeah, no, I think it's a very good. good point. The future hope is yeah. is really what we are to live for, and it's what causes us. In fact, John Piper wrote that great book, Future Grace, mm-hmm. and uh, highly recommend that one because he, he's like the way we obey now is by knowing that God is guaranteeing us this future grace as we do it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and in our our gospel centered moment in evangelicalism, which is been a good thing. It's produced not so good things at the same time, but uh, in all of that, we're we're taught more and more to look to the cross, look to the cross, which is good, right? I mean, that, that's a good thing. But the gospel is more than just the cross. Uh, it's also purchased this whole future reality that we're to be, actually be looking toward. Do you, would you say, I, I think people misquote 1 Corinthians 15, one through three, that, that's the gospel in a nutshell where it says that he died for our sins according to the scripture, was buried and was raised on the third day, um, that that's the gospel in a nutshell. And I, I, I wouldn't quibble on one level, but would you say that part of the gospel as well is, and he is coming, he ascended into heaven and he is coming back to judge the living and the dead? 100%. See, I do too. Now, I, I think a person can come to faith Mm-hmm. All they know is he died and rose again for my sin. I mean, just that simple, basic essence of the gospel. But but they need to be taught and pointing out that he didn't just go up into heaven and now we're just kind of floating around vaguely heading towards something. Um, he's coming back. Yes. And, and, and we're to arrange ourselves in accordance with that. Absolutely. Uh, and, and you know that Paul included that a lot in his preaching of the gospel because I think of passages like First Thessalonians 4 where they were freaked out because they thought they missed it. Yes. What does that imply? It implies they were instinctively looking to that return. And then the false teacher comes in and screws with them. Right. Um, th- my, my theology professor impressed a phrase that I still use, and he says that when you're looking at, at the eschatological passages, he said, what, what you should note is they're almost always yeah, I think I can say almost, but might be able to say always ethical, that be, in light of the fact that he is coming, purify yourself. Uh, now, you know, in light of that, do this. Um, even even uh, Piper does that in his book, Future Grace, because he says, what is it that frees you and I to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute? He says, because I will bring vengeance that God will do it. And that's that's an eschatological point, that in the end, God will judge and he will bring justice. And so you're able to not have to be uh, seeking your own personal justice when somebody wrongs you, but rather you can pray for them and bless them because of a coming judgment um, that God will do. And you entrust yourself to him. Which is very difficult to do. But the reason it is so difficult is because it indicates more how much we're making this our home. Right. Yep. Okay. Sorry. Um, okay. So Hebrews nine twenty eight. <laughs> sorry, he he had to give me something. And yeah. It was a long reach. Uh, Hebrews nine twenty eight says, "So this is the second passage. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation, without reference to sin, to those who eagerly wait." Here again, we see Jesus' first coming, and that it was to deal with sin and bearing the sins of many. But his second coming, as he says here, will not deal with sin, for it will be an appearance, as he says, without reference to sin. Instead, this time it is to bring salvation 
but to its completion. So two observations on this. First of all, salvation is not yet accomplished. That's what's implied in that statement. It began with the cross, but it will not culminate until Christ's return. That is when it shall be finalized. Second, Paul again states this final or full salvation will happen to those who are eagerly awaiting him. Amen. That is another active verb. Uh, also, it is for those, uh, notice who, uh, it, or it's not for those who merely await him in some intellectual way, but as he says, for those who eagerly await him. That gets into that fiducia aspect of faith, right? Um, that there's a trust, a hope. Um, it's not just, I've accepted some facts and on paper, I'm a Christian. It literally is a person whose hope in resting and looking for is that day when he comes. Absolutely. And, yeah. and it gets into the going all the way back to our salvation uh, discussion in systematic theology of salvation. It's a past event, it's an ongoing event, and it's a future event. And what you're saying is that future event is what's in view here. Yep. Yep. And, and so this right here, it's a very instructive passage, I think, for why eschatology is very important for everyday life. This is not an intellectual exercise or a point of debate. Uh, question is, how do you eagerly await something for which you don't understand? That's a very good question. Um, our, so our lack, of, our lack of eagerness, I think, can be attributed to, to many things, but you and I would suspect that some of that may have to do with just a lack of teaching on end times or really understanding fully what's to come. Simply put, we're not eager because we don't know what Christ's return actually means. We're talking to you pan-millennialists here. Yeah. It'll all pan out in the end. <laughs> I don't really want to know. Uh, actually, in my FOF class, uh, we had that last night, and uh, one young, she's a young Christian, a uh, young lady, and she was talking about the Bible, and and she she had heard John MacArthur's sermon that you read along with the, uh, or listen to along with the lesson, and he was talking about how Rev the book of Revelation is the only book that has a promise of blessing to those who listen and heed it. And she's like, I never knew that. She's like, I always avoided Revelation because it just seemed too mysterious and too hard. And she's like, now I want to read it. I want the blessing. I'm yeah. like, amen, amen. But yeah, how many people are actually almost willfully ignorant? And and in doing that, it, it doesn't engender any eagerness because they have no anticipation of what's to come. Yeah, absolutely. So we would say just in sum there that a proper eschatology is in fact critical to faithful living in the present. Which is the ethical eschatology. Amen. I agree. So second, the second coming of Christ will be a definite future event. And you say, duh. Well, I'm not sure a lot of people really believe that. So it's a definite future event. Uh, just a few passages. Matthew 6, 26, 64. Uh, it says, Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I will. I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man, that's a key phrase, sitting on the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, this is Jesus' confession before actually his accusers, and it really gets him corked. Um, but he's actually picking up on the language of Daniel chapter 7, uh, 7, chapter 7, 13 to 14. So hear it. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed." 
So, in other words, this was not just wishful thinking on Jesus's part. It wasn't a point of delusion by Jesus. It, it's a promise he's giving. Uh, now, to them, of condemnation, right? Mm. Um, yes. But it's a promise of what is to take place. Just as many other Old Testament prophecies of him were being fulfilled, so shall this one as well. Additionally, Jesus did not invent his second coming. Some people uh, will wonder, why didn't Jesus establish the full kingdom right after the resurrection? And the answer is because he must establish it in a manner consistent with God's plan as revealed in the Old Testament prophecy. I, I want to state that sentence one more time because I think people, well, you and I know what we're getting at with that because, but we think a lot of people in their eschatology trash Old Testament prophecy yeah. and they don't take it as it's written. So let, let's say it again. The answer that he, as to why he didn't establish his kingdom after his resurrection was because he must establish it in a manner consistent with God's plan as revealed in Old Testament prophecy. Another passage in Acts 3, 19 to 21, uh, Peter on that great uh, sermon, he says, Repent, therefore, and return, uh, that your sins may be wiped away, in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. That's the Old Testament from ancient time. This is, that, that is such a dense passage, um, and I, I, it was really fun there, to preach There's from. that divine must in there again, right? Yeah. He, he, that heaven must receive. It's a prophecy fulfillment. Which is a, it's day, term. right? Yep. Um, yeah. uh, Luke loves to use that word. D-E-I. Uh, in fact, you're the one that taught me that. I didn't know that. Um, and, and so when I actually preached on this here, whenever it was, uh, the past few months, I actually, I think I emailed you and said, tell me again <laughs> about the day. <laughs> and, uh, and you helped me out there. Um, but there's so many promises going on there. He's like, repent and return so that your sins will be wiped away. Why? For the purpose of the times of refreshing. And that's an interpretive issue. What is meant by that? comes from the presence of the Lord, and so now we have an additional thing that he, so we're talking about God, may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you. So Christ can't come until they repent. It's a resultive statement. Yeah, it's, it, and, and so I don't care if that makes people awkward or they want to argue. It's like you can't make that verse say something other than what it's saying. Uh, and then he goes on with the relative phrase, whom heaven must receive, and then that temporal until, right. so they must receive you until that period of restoration of all things. And where is that discussed? Old Testament. So again, the point is to hear that Jesus' return is very much a definite future. The temporal pos- preposition I just pointed out, until, indicates that. And also verse 21 says that all this happens in accordance to Old Testament prophecy. Uh, so I'll just, as an aside, say all of you who are poo-pooing the Old Testament, you don't read that much, and or you are so busy slapping Jesus on top of the Old Testament and changing its meaning, uh, you're, you're going to be messed up there. Let the Old Testament prophecy say what it says. Again, Jesus didn't invent that future return, but God's plan was always that Jesus would be raised, taken into heaven for a period of time, after which return, he would return at the appointed time. One more, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10. 
And it says, And to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints. That's a cool little phrase too. Mm -hmm. Glorified in his saints on that day and be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. So this is simply another passage that supports the two we just talked about. Uh, Jesus's return is a definite future event at which certain realities must come about, namely here, judgment, retribution, relief to the afflicted, glorification of the saints, and worship of Christ from all those who have believed. So uh, again, another super packed passage of... Uh, yeah, there's a lot there. Yeah, yeah, you just are begging to unpack it, but yeah. we can't. <laughs> Uh, third point uh, that you should understand about Jesus' return is that we do not know, and here's key, cannot know the day or time of this event. Matt, uh, Mark 13, 32 through 35 says, but of, the, of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but the father alone. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when this appointed time is. It is like a man away on a journey who, upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on alert. Therefore, be on alert. For you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, at cock crowing, or in the morning. There's that ethical eschatology again. In light of the fact that this is a guarantee, be on the alert. Absolutely. So the point there is we, we don't know. The angels don't know. Not even the son knows. Only the father knows that hour in which he will have the son return. Which is all kinds of questions. Yes. <laughs> Do you think he still not know, or was that something that was part of the kenosis? Or do you think, so now he knows, or? Ah, that's a good question. I've had, I've had that question asked, and I, I ultimately say I don't know because the scripture doesn't yeah. seem to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so what's the answer, what, <laughs> Tell us. To get the answer, you must sign up for our special yeah. private. Yeah, for a low price, introductory <laughs> price of $1,500, we'll give you the secrets <laughs> to the second coming. Yeah, it's we'll, all got to do with the blood moon. Yeah. Yep. No, I'm joking. <laughs> uh, we don't know. That's the answer. Um, but what's the application of that kind of statement? The application is we should not even spend one second trying to guess or determine when this event will happen. So you can save your money on all those stupid books that are trying to tell you. Yeah. I mean, how many countless claims have there been over the years of these people who keep being proved wrong time and time again? Yep. And unfortunately, they end up amassing a very large following and usually end up creating some kind of cult. Uh, which is very bizarre, sad, and unfortunate. And since we just did a podcast revisiting parachurches, that's a kind of parachurch organization you can probably all save your money as those prophecy and the news today kind of stuff. Um, it's not helpful. It, yeah. it, it, it might be very real fun, but don't be sending them your money. Let no. them die of not starvation. <laughs> I'm not that harsh, but, you know, Make go their bankrupt. living doing something else, right? Yes. So to your point, though, additionally, that also means you should not become what 
we like to just call that a newspaper theologian, where you're attempting to discern the times by looking at the news, global events, so on and so forth. I don't know how many things I've already read in light of the Russia-Ukraine thing, the power from the north. Yeah, it's like Gog and Magog. Yeah, you don't Gog know. and Magog. Yeah. Get ready. And and how many people are now warning Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. Um, the clear statement, again, is that we cannot know. Again, not even Jesus knows, as far as we can tell. I mean, yes. maybe now that he's in heaven, yeah. who knows? But that's all supposition. We, what we do know is the scripture says uh, he doesn't. Yeah, the, the simple point is God has not and will not reveal this. So, the fourth one follows right in line with that. The return of Christ will be unexpected. So, Second Peter 3, 3 through 10, it says, know this first of all. So, that's He's like, you got to learn something. In the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintained this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water." So, just an aside, so Peter was somewhat naive there. He didn't understand that was a localized flood that, that really is just part of the Babylonian mythology and yep. silly Peter. Anyhow. Uh, Hasn't he heard of Marmaduke? <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow. Uh, but we digress. Yes. But the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, which is in the which in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. So that language of thief in the night shows the unexpected nature of this. Uh, we, we will simply be going about life, and he will suddenly appear. In many ways, it's a corollary as Noah and, and everyone's buying and selling and having babies and everything, and then the rains and the floods That came. first drop comes. Yep, and things got ugly quick. So if we can't know the time of this event, and it will be utterly unexpected, what is the point in talking about it? Well, verses 11 through 14 tell us, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening, that's a very interesting thing, uh, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Again, ethical eschatology. Your life should follow what you are anticipating. So knowledge of Jesus' future return is to be the motivation for holy living. Knowledge of the exact timing is not what motivates us, rather the imminency and the unexpected nature of it is what ought to control our lives. Notice there's these active present 
tense verbs. We are to be looking. We are to be diligent. We are to be found by him a certain way, namely at peace, spotless, and blameless. Additionally, there is that very interesting comment in verse 12 where it says, uh, we can live in such a way so as to hasten the coming of the Lord. So in some way, Christians play a part in the timing of the Lord's return. Paul gets into that too in Romans 11. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, it's a somewhat elusive statement, but it may be intentional, for otherwise many would spend much effort trying to bring about the return so, yeah, meaning, like what's the formula? Yeah, so what do we got to do? Yeah. yeah, so he he puts it out there, and that should urge you onward, but in the same way, you're not sure exactly, so it keeps it in that unexpected realm. Uh, but he's not commanding us to bring about the return. Rather, he's given us a motivation than to live as a holy people. And through our faithful living, God brings about certain predetermined works that will play a part in the timing of Christ's return. And what is that predetermined work? It's the coming in of his elect, or gathering would be the coming in or the gathering in? Gathering is a, fun, yeah, that would or be a Gathering of his elect through our faith. Yeah, it's a bringing in. Yeah. It's, it's as you're bringing the gospel out and you're gathering them in. When the fullness of the elect are gathered, he will come. I can tell you that. Um, right. Romans 11 is clear about that. Um So the bringing in or gathering in of his elect through our faithful living and witness. Also, verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And the all there in context is explicitly identified as his elect. And the word any, that's a a pronoun as well. So when you got that, you have to look backwards for your antecedent. Mm-hmm. And as he's being patient towards you, who's the you? It's the elect. You have to go all the way back to chapter one, I think, right. uh, to get get the antecedent. But it's not he's patient, not wishing for any person vaguely in general that might decide they want to follow him. It's The any is the elect. Yes. Yep. He is patiently enduring all of the wickedness as he g- gathers in the elect. So the fact that he's not here right now, he has not returned yet, means that they're still elect who don't know their elect, and we don't know who they are. And what our job, our job is to then take the gospel to the uttermost part of the earth. That's how you hasten it. Yes. Uh, very simple. So the point, though, is his return will be an unexpected, and therefore we are to be exceedingly watchful and on alert. And again, this gets confirmed in Mark as well. In Mark 13, 32 to 36, but of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. So take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time is. It's a like a man away on a journey who, upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, at cock crowing, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. It's repeated about three times in yeah. there. Yeah, you think he's serious? <laughs> uh, fifth point, Jesus' return will be personal, visible, and bodily. Acts 1 verse 11 says, And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Here we have a definitive statement. The key phrase is that he, Jesus, he will come 
in just the same way, that's the key phrase, as you have watched him go. So he left personally, therefore he will come back personally. It won't be through a messenger or an ambassador or an angel, but it will actually be him personally. He left also visibly up into heaven. Therefore, he will come back visibly from heaven. And he left in a physical resurrected body. Therefore, he will come back in that same physical resurrected body. It's interesting because the Old Testament prophets speak of him returning onto the Mount of Olives. And that's exactly where he was when he ascended. Right. And and a lot of people will poo-poo that. But I'm, when I preached on that, I'm like, no, he literally is going to be in the same way. Mm -hmm. um, and it's going to be crazy. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, I think about, it's like, how could you, how could everybody see the resurrected, like a person? And it's like, well, we have things called smartphones and I don't know if that's how it's going to happen. But I don't either. It's but right now we're watching it. the war in Ukraine unfold live. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I actually have some, um, what are they called? Uh, webcams or live cams and you can log in uh, and they're scattered throughout Kiev and mm -hmm. You can watch. <laughs> right, it's crazy. Yeah. Crazy. So his return, understand, is not something spiritual. It's not ethereal. The return and triumph of Christ is not a reference to, as some people say, the growing expansion of his teaching. It's not, as others will say, a reference to Jesus being resurrected and reigning in the hearts of his believers in some way. Rather, it's a personal, visible, bodily return. And so again, why is this important to know? Well, notice the rebuke of these two angels who were standing here in the text. Uh, in verse 10, it says, And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come back in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. In other words, what they're saying is, so get to work. Yeah. Um, that's the point. Knowledge of his personal, visible, bodily return is to be that fuel, which fuels faithfulness in the Christian to be busy about the kingdom, making disciples of this one who will return. All right. So finally, the return will be then triumphant and glorious. So Matthew 24, 30 and 31. And then the, son of, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. That's an Old Testament reference, too. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from which from one end of the sky to the other. In other words, you don't see Jesus coming back as a meek little baby but rather now as a conquering and triumphant king. And so part of that glory is going to be in his judicial work. Here we go to Revelation 19, which talks about that uh, second coming in verse 11 down to 14. Nope, down to 16. Um, and I saw the heaven, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and his he has a name written upon him, which no one knows except himself, which then everyone says, what do you think it is? <laughs> they always ask. I know it, I know and it. And you're like, he only knows it. Yeah, but what do you think it is? <laughs> I don't know. Um, and he is clothed with a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. 
And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he, might, he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has name, a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What's interesting there is it says he will smite the nations and he will also rule them. I believe that's a present tense um, or future tense uh, that he will rule them with a rod of iron. If you hold to a coming where his second coming is the end of everything, we just go into the eternal kingdom, then in what way is he ruling the nations? Um, if you're depending on how your view on, on the millennium is, that it makes better sense that he's coming to establish that earthly reign in which he will then rule the nations. Um, if he just comes and everything's burned up immediately and we go into heaven or hell, doesn't make a lot of sense, but that's just an aside. So very glorious, uh, but it also involves this idea of judgment, which is part of that glory. Yep, absolutely. So uh, much more we could say, but that's probably sufficient. There is ample New Testament evidence to support the future return of Christ. And the reason Jesus spoke of his second coming and the reason God gives us his revelation is because it's to serve us in helping us stay alert, remain faithful, and of course, to live in hope. Without a firm conviction of the return of Christ ever before your eyes, you will always be prone to waver. And so Christians must keep the end in mind for that is the only way that you'll truly persevere. Uh, so next time we'll jump into the discussion on the millennium, uh, as well as various views on the nature of the tribulation, uh, several views on that, and we plan to show what those are. But until then, make sure to tune in, join the conversation, let us know your thoughts on the return of Christ, and don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, and review on iTunes. Connect with us on Facebook and Instagram, and tell a friend. <music>